0: To the build business acumen podcast where we deliver practical knowledge and powerful guidance here is your futuristic host nathaniel schooler in this episode i'm interviewing stephen dickens and he's a trusted advisor for clients focused on protecting digital assets blockchain and building private clouds he's actually worked for over 20 years In hardware and software across multiple industries. And now he actually works for IBM, where he leads a global sales and pre sales team of over 50 50 people. So he shares some really great information, and I think you will certainly enjoy this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Well, it's nice to speak with you again, Stephen. Yes, and you, definitely. Looking forward to this today. Me too, me too, so uh, I think should we talk about pricing first? I know it's a bit of a painful topic, but it's um it's important isn't it to 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 kind of get your pricing right isn't it when you're when you're in uh, in business
1: yeah, for sure, I mean, I've just come from a session actually in the last couple of minutes before we jumped on this call together, talking about how our pricing how how we define pricing for one of the offerings that we've got in development that should come out later on in the year. And they have me join these teams who are kind of coming up with pricing strategy. And What I'm always amazed with is the amount of guesswork and assumptions that go into how organizations define a price for their solution. People will go out and build a competitive view. They'll go out and in, interview clients. They'll go out and kind of get this view from the market and p- take a tiny sample size and then try and extrapolate that out for how they're going to approach a market with 10,000 clients in it in seven different geographies around the world. So, you know, it's it's really interesting to spend time with our, ty- our teams on this and how much of that guesswork comes into how a list price is set for a product. And then it's handed over to sales who then have to go and live with it out in the field.
0: Yeah, that must be, it must be really, really hard. I mean, with lots of different markets as well. And, and so would the price actually be the same or different in each of those markets? Like with you guys? Well,
1: IBM operates on seven, major geographies and then there'll be countries within each one of those kind of geography areas we could probably be having as many as 50 different prices for the same IBM component so it's really interesting you've both got a price to the market and then price to the local geo so there's a whole complexity that comes through which then obviously becomes a sales challenge once the the offering management team have thrown that offering across and into generally available status so that we can then go and sell it. So there's just challenges through the entire process, how you define that price, how you manage a global deployment to that price, and then how sales goes and executes and kind of lives with that challenge as they're tasked with taking that price out and into the marketplace
0: ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. So are sales people over there actually given any autonomy over, you know, being able to sort of reduce that price for like volume and that kind of stuff? Or,
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we've got teams who look after our pricing structures and they've got delegated authorities to certain levels. And then we've got an established process um, around how we run that in order for more more competitive situations we're trying to win a new client we're trying to deal with a client who's operating at scale but all of that becomes a very manual process very quickly um you know so you're relying on the good judgment of executives who are seeing across the entire business so i think if anybody's sort of wanting to get a feel for how they should be setting a price they've got to be thinking about how they operationally manage that price once it's deployed out there into
0: the field yeah yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense so what are the most interesting meetings that you've sat in with pricing in your whole career
1: well, I think there's he yeah, lots of them <laughs> I'm trying to think of some particular interesting ones i think you know you're obviously always on The dynamic of the client wants it to cost less and the sales guy wants it to cost more. And they've got competing measures and metrics that drive both of those sets of behaviors. So, so that's kind of the first dynamic, you know, there isn't the classic win-win that everybody talks about. The sales guy wants to maximize his quota. The client wants to maximize their budget and pay as little as possible. And there really is not many ways to square that circle. It's a compromise from both sides. So I think the most interesting meetings I've been in with clients, as we talk about kind of ultimately price, is really trying to understand what the value drivers are for the client. You know, get beyond what we think it should cost us as a supplier, and really understand from the client side and and kind of sit the side of the table where the client is and understand the value that they're going to de- derive from the software. you know I did a time of motion study with a client around a piece of software that we're going to deploy into their retail warehouse. So this was guys in that guys and gals in this warehouse having to walk the floor and we were putting a mobile solution into that um, warehouse for the first time that meant that people would be able to carry around stock information on a tablet. The ROI case for that just leapt out because this warehouse was so big that people were doing a 10-minute walk to get back to p- to print something out to then go back on a 10-minute walk. So in that situation, price m- melted into the background because we were both having a value-based conversation around the ROI of just real people doing real tasks that we could quantify. So that's probably one that would stand out for me, Nathaniel as we're talking about trying to understand what price means. It's really just a reflection of value, and that's not value in the eye of the seller that's value in the eye of the client
0: right right so So that return on investment could actually be well it could be it could mean a lot of different things. it could be actually you know obviously based on figures, right, but you could also you could also say well we are more of a robust company. So we've been around for however many years. We're not going to go anywhere versus a company that perhaps is a bit new or might have just launched that particular product line, right? So price then becomes secondary, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's how much overhead is built
1: into how you define the price you know so one of the key components is the corporate tax the overhead you need to build you know you've got to pay for the offices you've got to pay for the hr department you've got to pay for the um you know car parking spaces you've got to pay for the security guard you've got to pay for the person who sits on reception you know all of those have to be amortized across your revenue stream so obviously the larger the organization you are the larger that overheads going to be and this is why we see obviously so many organizations focused on cost cutting measures of non revenue generating staff because that obviously impacts the price that they can charge in the marketplace and ultimately the top line revenue. So it's, you know, size and scale of your non generate revenue generating kind of operations really does filter into the overall price you can charge. And I think whenever we're having those conversations, that's just a a grim reality that we have to build into all of our cost decisions and our cost equations. Overhead, fixed overhead, just fixed overhead's got to be amortized. And it's, it's how you go about doing that and managing and constraining that fixed overhead.
0: Yeah. And how you, and how you look at that product as well. Like, is that product just a product to get people in the door? So then you sell them something more expensive, you know?
1: Well, it's interesting
0: in a world where so many of the
1: born on the cloud vendors are out there trying to win market share. I think you're seeing a lot of artificially low priced offerings and solutions. And I think whilst that might be good for the early entrants, you've also got to be aware as a client that's not going to be the situation for the long term. I think we're seeing this with some of the big public cloud providers. Right. You know, they're, they're doing a lot to get people on their platforms. Is that in the best interest of the customer in the long term? You know, predatory pricing to get in and build a market share for a big cloud provider is maybe not where you want to be as a client. Because the only way that big cloud provider can turn to profitability is to rack up the price. And if you've moved all your data in and moved all your environment to the cloud, then they've got an exit cost that you hadn't bargained on, and now they're ratcheting up the price. Yeah. So so there's lots of... I see it increasingly, you know, nothing is ever as cheap as it would appear on the surface, and people have got to build that into their thought process. What's my cost of getting out of this situation, not what, what my cost is of getting into this situation?
0: That's a very good way to look at it. Never thought about it like that.
1: <laughs> well, just ask yourself how much it costs to get your data off some of the big cloud providers. So you decide to fall out with, I don't know, I'll, I'll pick on Amazon because they're yeah. the big, uh, you know, yeah. you decide you want to fall out with AWS in three years' time and you want to move to, I don't know, IBM Cloud, hmm. Google Cloud, Microsoft Azure. Pick any other cloud, but you just decide you want to terminate your relationship with Amazon. What's the cost to get out? I don't know. That's that's never factored in. Obviously, AWS are doing a good job at telling you how cheap it is to get in to their cloud. Right. That's that's a lot less hidden of what it costs to get out of that cloud. Right. And I think, you know, that, that rush to the cloud. We're starting to see a lot of people now, as the cloud market matures, mm. get caught out by that very situation and and realise the cost of moving and how hostage you
0: are to some of those cloud providers. Wow. So yeah. so, so, all of that's like in the small print then of your contract oh, yeah.
1: design. De- painful, yeah. Man. yeah, definitely buried on page 38 in, you know, eight-point font stuck oh. in legalese that you're not going to get your head around quickly. Mm. And I think this is, if something's too cheap, there's a catch, would be my advice to um, a lot of corporate buyers and procurement teams out there yeah
0: that's that's painful (laughs) i can just i can only just imagine how upsetting that must be for 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 some people out there you know especially if they're trying to use some sort of different apps or something that they're not found on that particular providers list um or not to the standard that they could get somewhere else i'm learning a lot about cloud at the moment but but our listeners they're, they're 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 probably they'd probably they probably know what cloud is because most people do now, but they don't know about um, you know most of this kind of techie stuff, to be honest. But it's the same though, isn't it? It's the same like anywhere. Like when you when you sign up to a mobile phone contract and then you work out that like you know new customers are getting eight gigabytes of data right for the same price that that and you're getting four. It's like hold on, you've been with the company for how many years? Shouldn't you get like um. Preferential rate just for customer loyalty. Surely,
1: you would think so as the client. Yeah. But what the, what they've done is built in the cost of acquisition of the client. So you know, you as a client, there's a cost to acquire you. Yeah. That cost is you know, in the first year, I've got marketing costs, I've got sales and general administration, SGNA costs, I've got the teaser offer price that I want to offer you to get you onto my platform. But built into that model is price increases on the back end because right. there's a cost to you of moving. How many people actually move TV provider, mobile phone provider? gas and electric provider yes those markets have become more competitive and it's got easier to move than it was maybe 15 years ago but so many of the people just stay and let the price ratchet up because they haven't got time or yeah. the effort or the inclination to move yeah so everybody knows that who's setting these prices and that's built into the five-year business case when they're off- offering a new service right That's interesting. So you're looking at it on the back end. I get it. I get it. You got to make businesses have got to be profitable, and they've got to get that profit somehow. They might not get it in the year one and two, but they might get it in years three, four, and five.
0: Right. I get it. That's quite interesting, actually. I love I love speaking to my mobile phone company. I'm not going to say who they are, but. I love busting their balls. I really do. It, it makes me laugh. I call them up like literally when i am and they're trying to sell me a package, you know, and I'm just like, no, no, no. And I'm, Usually I'm speaking to some chap, in, you know, abroad in a call center. It just cracks me up. It's, it's just like sometimes I've actually turned off, turn off the microphone because I'm laughing so hard that I've just busted this guy so, so hard for a deal that I know he can't do. And, and I know he's got to be nice to me. It's just like.
1: Yeah, it's it's good sport. I mean, you should be ringing your providers once every year yeah. saying, saying you're going to move, even if you have no intention of. And yeah. you'd be surprised what they're authorized to do from a customer retention point of view. Oh, so yeah. just oh, yes. sort of financial advice from, from me here, from everybody, ring your provider once a year and threaten to leave. Yeah. you will be surprised.
0: Yeah, yeah, completely. And I was yeah, I was talking to someone who's a negotiator the other day and he was saying, actually, you know, if you're buying a product, you know, not like a subscription product, because that's generally, you know, a bit more of a headache to move, but like if you're buying like, you know, in a company, you just buy a product from someone else and say, Oh, sorry, I, I went with so and so, and then you and then they'll take you seriously next time, won't they? Because sometimes people just say they're gonna move just because they think they're gonna get a better price, you know. Yeah, it's definitely a dynamic for sure. Mm. Well, that's really interesting. Thank you. Uh, so, with productive meetings, you must have a lot of experience because I know you manage quite a lot of salespeople, don't you? you? You sort of you got sort of fifty and upwards, haven't you? That you that you kind yeah, of yeah
1: ra- around the world working for me, kind of taking this proposition out there into these um, 50, seven different markets that I talked about. And it's interesting you talk about productive meetings. I, I get invited into a lot of those meetings that have obviously had prep and work put into them, and then we fall down on some of the basics. How many times do you go into a meeting where you're often running into the agenda before everybody knows who each other is in the meeting and you've actually set the objective? You know, somebody's got a PowerPoint chart deck running and we're off into a presentation, and somebody's then pitching. Well, does everybody in the room know who everybody is and what we're trying to achieve? So I, I spend a lot of time working with junior reps as they come through our graduate program because at that age, those reps are consciously aware that they're incompetent and are very focused on the basics. So I use it as a way to keep myself current on the basics. It's so easy to get into bad habits of, having meetings where you don't know why you're there, you don't know everybody's objectives, and it's unclear what we're all there to try and achieve. And I would say unfortunately, maybe as many as, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy percent of my meetings fall into that category. And only when you really set the objectives early on at the start of the call and say this is why I want to be here. This is what we're trying to achieve. This is why I've called this meeting. These are the three people on the call, and this is what we're trying to get out of it. Do you find that your meeting finishes early? So the best run meetings finish early, in my experience. So just focus on the basics. I think would be some would be my biggest advice to drive productive meetings.
0: That's really useful. The amount. Nothing
1: grandiose and big from an advice point of view, just real basics.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's just like, this is John, blah, 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 this is is Tara, and we're here to talk about such and such, such and such, and and that's it, right? And then you kick off, and then you close, and that's it. It's done, right?
1: Well, the other thing, and it's a question I always ask of my sales reps, and it bizarrely seems to catch all of them out, What does the perfect meeting look like? So this meeting, the next hour goes amazingly. We get everything we want out of it. What's your ideal outcome? Mm -hmm. And it is amazing to me that people are shocked by that question. It rocks them back onto their feet, and they have to think about an answer. Yeah. Well, why have the meeting if you haven't thought through A, what you want as the perfect outcome, and B, how you plan to navigate towards that perfect outcome.
0: Right, right. So would you say it's a good idea to have a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle of it, and on the left-hand side put, what do they want, and on the right-hand side put, what do you want? Is that a good place to start before you... Yeah, Yeah, it's
1: interesting. IBM's sort of corporate motto is think. Hmm. And I think so many people bounce from one meeting to the next meeting to the next meeting, and I'm guilty of this, without putting that pause and think, what do I actually want to get out of this meeting? What do the people in the room actually want to get out of this meeting? And what's a good set of next steps and actions? And then how are we going to make sure what we talk about in this room becomes something actionable? Because we don't just want to have a meeting, we want it to be part of a structured process to drive an outcome. You know, whether that's an internal outcome, whether that's a client situation, you're not just having a meeting for meeting's sake. It's part of a journey to achieve something.
0: Right. So so do you think a lot of meetings could be just avoided altogether because they're a waste of time and and actually you could just do it in like two or three emails?
1: Well, it's interesting. I've become a big user of Slack over the last 12 months Mm -hmm. as a communication tool. And I see, I mean, a bunch of Slack channels with small groups driving forward to objectives. I would say that's cut out a lot of meetings, um, a lot of pointless meetings, at least. We still need to meet as groups, but having communication tools out there. And then I think, I don't know whether it would eliminate meetings overall, but the best run, best orchestrated meetings finish faster. So having a 20-minute meeting in an hour-long meeting slot gives 40 minutes back to everybody else to go and do something else. Yeah, We put, we put hour-long meetings on the calendar, and that's just the arbitrary time that we said we're going to have for the meeting. Nothing says it needs to take an hour. If you can get to that desired outcome in 20 minutes, everybody's got 40 minutes. Everybody bounces off the call happy that they didn't have to sit for an hour and you've got 40 minutes to go and do something else and it's bonus it's bonus time because you were expecting to spend an hour doing achieving the previous task
0: yeah i can just imagine being a fly on the wall in some of the meetings and your face when when <laughs> when they're a waste of time and the things you've said to people i can just imagine it i <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do, I do
1: need to be careful now. I do a lot of WebExes because of, I don't have a poker face for this stuff. So yeah, I, you you do have to be aware of the tools you're using. Down a phone is one thing. On a WebEx, your frustration with people <laughs> uh, needs to be well managed. Let's put it that way.
0: <laughs> I can just imagine it now. It, it must be so. How long have you been uh, been in sales, uh, Stephen? Oh.
1: 20 so in the industry 25 years in sales for 21 of those years
0: wow
1: wow so yeah becoming a veteran i never thought this would happen to me but i have become one of those cynical cynical experienced sales leaders that uh, i always used to joke about when i was in my sort of mid to late 20s so yeah i've kind of turned into that version of myself that i never wanted to be (laughs)
0: <laughs> so you're a bit like the guy in the glen Gary glen ross film when he walks oh. in and just says Coffee coffee's,
1: for, for coffee's for closers i think anybody should watch that alec baldwin scene that is <laughs> literally the I, I was playing it to one of our product guys the other day he's like why can i not get the sales guys to do anything i said let me show you the seven minutes of 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 uh, movie clip that I would love to work with <laughs> and as my basis to communicate with my reps. Anybody who's li- literally Nathaniel and I are talking about a movie called Glen, Gary, Glen Ross. It is a tiny budget movie with an all star cast from I think the late eighties, early nineties. It's on Netflix. Glen, Gary, Glen Ross. Anybody in the sales function? needs to watch this movie it has literally got two of my favorite scenes one of them is coffee for closers the other scene is Al Pacino's boss who's played by kevin spacey messes up a deal and just it's classic just classic movie uh, movie gold anybody in the sales function these guys are selling real estate it's it's just gold it's the best 90 minutes of your life. If you're
0: in a sales leadership position. Oh yeah. It's, it's priceless when he, when he walks in and he puts his watch, he puts his watch on the guy's bag. And he and he says, he says, he says, Michael, I think it's like how much money you earned last year. He says to the guy, and then, and then he takes his watch off, puts it on. It's just, it's priceless. That
1: watch is more, more than your car. Yeah. That's what I'm worth. Yeah. That's what he says. And it's, it's I think Alec Baldwin got an Oscar nomination for those seven minutes of screen time. It's wow. it's a fantastic, fantastic movie.
0: You can but, ju- oh, it's awful though. Like that bit's aw- like you're right on edge when 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 the old guy's like trying to get a coffee and he just sort of looks at him and then it-
1: <laughs> it's just brilliant. Put that coffee down. Coffee <laughs> is for closers.
0: And you're yeah. all fired. Everyone's yeah. fired. <laughs>
1: First prize is a Cadillac El Dorado. Second prize is a set of steak knives. And third prize, <laughs> you're all fired. Just a classic. I, I, as you can tell, I recite this movie on a daily basis. <laughs> I can just
0: imagine it. It's, oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's, it's a class. Anybody in the sales function, it should be compulsory yeah. watching. The Coffee is for Closers YouTube clip. It's up on YouTube. Various people have ripped it off and put it on YouTube. definite Google it, find it, watch it.
0: Yeah, hundred percent.
1: Awesome, awesome 100%. clip. You can't. I just, just wish. Myself. I just wish I could talk to my reps like that without <laughs> dragged in front of HR. But there you go.
0: <laughs> I can just imagine it. I bet you're sitting there and actually you're thinking, and you're actually going back to that scene and thinking, like, I wish I could do that now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: I, I, when, when in the early '90s, that was played to me in a sales meeting. Was it? And it it set the tone. And you just literally couldn't do that these days. I'd be I'd be fired for a gross misconduct and HR violation if I played that clip to anybody. Cause, <laughs> but it, it is it is
0: that good. <laughs> it is it is. I think it's um it's it's motivational when you watch it. If you're in sales, there's no doubt about it. You know. Yeah, for sure. For yeah, sure. Yeah. But so do you think meetings where, you, where people are standing up are a good idea instead of sitting down?
1: Well, I think, and we've just transitioned to using WebEx, I think anything that makes a meeting interactive, anything that makes a meeting engaging, so many people are in meetings and doing email, they're on their phones, they're doing something else and they're not actively engaged anything you can do via whatever of the platforms or tricks like getting people to stand up where they have got laptops down and engaged is going to make for a better meeting. Now, is that practicable if people are on meetings sort of 10 hours a day? Maybe not. But if you want to get those highest impact meetings, being able to kind of enforce a no laptops policy or, we're going to do this meeting standing up or we're going to try and do this meeting in half an hour, not an hour. Right. You know, just little tricks like that can often drive just different outcomes. The best meeting I've had in the last year was a 10 minute meeting really? where, we, yeah, where we were all. So I was meeting with a software vendor at their annual conference. The lady, the general manager of their business was busy, got, Held up by a client, apologized, and we had to have what was a 30 minute meeting in 10 minutes. She still talks about that meeting as the most productive meeting she's done in the last two years. We talk about that meeting because what we did is did half an hour's worth of meeting in 10 minutes because we had to, yeah, because the situation had engineered itself to be like that, right. So, it makes you wonder if all of your meetings were done in a third of the time, would there be better meetings?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's just like you say, putting down what you want to get out of the meeting and making a list of the points you know, and the ones that and it's also back to like working out is it important? Is it urgent? Do I need to talk about it now, or can I leave it until another meeting? Do you know what I mean?
1: Yes, exactly, being thoughtful, as I said, think. What, why am I here? Why is everybody else here? What am I trying to achieve? What is everybody else trying to achieve? What does that ideal outcome for me and for the others, what does that look like and how do we get to that point and yeah. get to that point as quickly as possible? And if it's a one of a recurring set of meetings, how are we going to make sure we hold each other to account to make sure we deliver on the actions? Just thought. It sounds simplistic but so many people don't put thought into their meetings
0: thanks that's really helpful so i know you're big on sales pipeline right and <laughs> <you've got> your, <laughs> well, you would be wouldn't you you got your steak knives have you <laughs> yeah, it's my, it feels like my mastermind specialist subject at
1: times um, but yes trying to make sure that my team at least win a set of steak knives <laughs> Uh, is is uppermost in my mind at all times.
0: (laughs) I can just imagine the Cadillac.
1: (laughs) The Cadillac Eldorado for the guys who do this well. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting sales pipeline. It becomes a data scientist task if done badly, and it becomes an art form if it's done well. And I think too many people fall into the data scientist Kind of focused on what I describe as outputs. So I I must see sales pipers, and we talked about this before we jumped on the line here, around sales inputs and sales outputs. So many senior sales leaders will get their team together once a week and say, let's talk about our pipeline and our forecast, and they'll talk about deals that are in this month or this week or in this quarter, and as it'll get to the end of that sort of month or quarter the pressure ratchets up and we talk about less and less deals and it's how do I get those three deals across the line or how do what do you specifically need to do to get this deal from this point to that point so that we can get a customer to sign on the line that is dotted to quote another Glen Gary Glen Ross phrase so I describe that as output management okay I often wonder is there any value to be added by senior leadership in the sales function over and above what's added by the first line manager? So I'm always paranoid of this as my sales guys will have spoken to their in-country first line manager. They'll have probably spoken to the geo leader. They'll have probably spoken to somebody else who's got a particular slice through maybe from a functional point of view. And then they're on a call with me once a week having that same conversation for the fifth time i've got to be pretty special in that call to add some value that four of my peers who are all experienced sales managers haven't added before it gets to me yeah i'm you know it's pretty arrogant of me to think i'm going to catch out a the sales rep who's spending all their time on this deal and b the four other sales managers that have been before me And say something that's so revolutionary that changes the trajectory of that deal. But that's where I spend my time because that's what the organization asks me to do. So I try and minimize wherever possible that type of sales overlap and overlay and spend my time with my reps on what I call the input part of the sales pipe. How do I get you to get more deals? How do I get you to get more first meetings with clients? How do I get you more deals where we can put a proposal on the table for the first time with a client? How do, I super, how do I get you to get into more conferences so that you can meet more people, grow your network, get to more meetings? How do I help clients find you through social media so that you can drop stones into more ponds? Sales managers never spend their time with teams there. But it's from from my perspective, I think it's the biggest way to grow my pipeline. Not to look at the yield of my deals that are already in their final stages and try and increase that. But just put more deals in the pipe in the first place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can see that would take a lot of pressure off as well, the stress of – the stress of trying to push deals. I mean, my brother, he's worked for Cisco for many years um, and been in security sales for like, you know, a long time. And, you know, I know the stress that he goes through when like a deal, you know, when he was working in the, in the reseller channel and sort of working with the distributors and then, you know, they're trying to close a deal in this quarter and then, you know, it's just a nightmare. It's an utter nightmare like because there's so many factors that can affect that deal, right? And uh, it might not work. Do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, it's
1: about, as I say, how you manage those outputs. Imagine if we take that salesperson sort of function and you've got three deals in your pipeline at the end of the quarter. The management team have got three things to talk to you about and you're being inspected on those three deals. Imagine if I could have worked with you earlier in the sales process and put 30 deals into that same sales stage.
0: Yeah.
1: So very different. And you've got to close one deal at the end of the quarter to hit your number. Yeah. One one from three or one from 30 is a whole different ball game. Yeah. So being a, I spend a lot of time with my sales teams on the early stages of pipeline development because what I find is, it just makes me more successful because my pool of deals at the end of a quarter is just so much bigger. So I'm fixing the problem at source rather than fixing the problem at the end. It's interesting. I take a a study Japanese management at university and fixing problems in the factory is better than fixing problems in the dealership. Hmm. If I can make my reps more successful by putting more, more successful, kind of tools and processes and things that get them to make deals easier to navigate through the pipe and easier to get clients to understand the value proposition so you can get more deals matured quicker that's a lot better use of your time than trying to grind on a deal in two weeks before it closes to try and come up with some magic to make it get across the line
0: yeah yeah. So is it fair to say that it that it's sort of crossing over into marketing really and your and how your what am I what am I saying how you're actually working with the marketing departments and stuff and instead of like just focusing on sales sales do you know what
1: i mean Yeah it's really interesting you say that and that's really insightful i do spend probably a disproportionate amount of time for a sales leader with my marketing um executives and my peers over there Um, because I think I read an interesting report that 59% of a client's buying journey is done before they talk to a salesperson these days. I mean, when was the last time you bought something over $200? You know, a set of headphones, a new laptop, a car, white goods for the house, you know, a new TV. What did you do? You went on all the websites, read all the reviews, yeah, checked the pricing, and then you walked into Currys or Best Buy, and you said, "I'm buying that one." Yeah. What was the salesperson in Best Buy's ability to change your decision? None. He was an order taker. Yeah. So that applies in the enterprise space. People will have gone on your website. They'll have looked at competitive analysis. They'll maybe have got a third party to help them they'll have done their research and maybe gone as far as 60% through their buying journey with you before you're in their office. So if you can make your marketing and your sales collateral and the information that people find out about your product more compelling, when you finally turn up as the sales rep, your chance of success is so much higher. And then once you turn up, If your presentation is crisp, keynote-worthy, slides, nice images, very well presented, articulately delivered, then that first meeting is going to go well. So you've got a better chance of getting to the second meeting. If the second meeting then has got really good collateral assets, material, you've got a good chance of getting to the third meeting. If you can move those meetings through as fast as possible, you can be collapsing 12-month sales cycles into three months if you do this right. So I spend a disproportionate amount of time thinking about sales velocity through the pipe, thinking about inhibitors and snags along the way and how I can fix those. You know, just one of the ones we've, we've just rolled out a process where we've got um, four key sales plays. Each one of those sales plays has got a five-chart deck, and a 20-chart deck, those decks are all scripted, and they've all gone through our digital agency to be as high quality as if we were delivering them on 60-foot screens and for keynotes. Why, nice. have I done, why have I done that for sales presentations? Well, why shouldn't a salesperson have the best quality assets and material in their hands? Yeah. Why do I have to give them low-quality graphics, You know, the fonts are all wrong, and then expect them to say, well, why did you not close this deal fixing yeah. stuff in the factory rather than fixing it in the dealership
0: yeah that makes, Just... it makes makes huge sense massive sense and 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 also like building relationships as well like with with within social media like i, I heard you mention that a few minutes ago is that is that fair to say well, i mean if i was trying to sell to you what would be my best
1: sales tool Would I, and and we connected via social media, so that probably is, you're a bad example, but if I was trying to sell to you and I was trying to sell on the phone, I was to send you a letter, I tried to send you an email, I tried to send you a direct message on Twitter or on LinkedIn,
0: Hmm.
1: what platform
0: would I have the best hit rate on? Probably LinkedIn, actually, depending on depending on if I needed what you were selling or if I may need yeah. what you're selling and then how you approach me as well, you know? So if my best chance of getting,
1: and you're a sample size of one, but I hear this consistently from business mm. people is the best chance is on social media. Yeah. If I've, if you've just said the best way to get hold of you and to get a initial conversation with you is via LinkedIn. Mm. why as a salesperson would you not be a jedi knight of linkedin linkedin very true because that's just become the best tool to speak to customers for the first time on yeah now i'm not i'm not saying you close deals on linkedin i i've spoken to two clients this week who found me Mm -hmm. via social media what a great way to build your pipe if you don't have to do any
0: outbound work yeah yeah I was just thinking about it yesterday and like back to the old days of like the roller deck and this posh lady in the office that used to like give me a card and say, this lady's just changed jobs. There's a new buyer there. You must call her. And then I'd call them up and then send them a letter, you know, and like how much that's changed now. Like even, even if you're a buyer and you're looking to buy something, you don't call them. And if you do phone generally, people don't even answer the phone in some of the companies I'm trying to do something at the moment and, and book a, a venue. So I call up, there's no answer. So I, I was just like, right. Okay. I'm going to just email, have a response within half an hour. You know, it's bizarre the way the things. World, the world has changed completely. Yeah. The
1: best way to get hold of me is to send me a either a Slack message internally. Yeah. Cause I'm drowned in email. That's probably yeah. the best platform. Yeah. Um, or to get me, send me a direct message on Twitter. Because right. I'm on phone calls, probably twelve hours a day. Wow. How you? How are you going to phone me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you'd have to catch me probably before seven thirty in the morning or after seven thirty at night, in order to catch me on the phone. Yeah. So yeah. how do, you know the And that's the client you're selling to has got this, that same work schedule. So you just got to think about the tools.
0: Yeah, and and try and find as much in common with that person as possible, right? And like, you know, don't be don't be an ass about it. If there are like twenty sales reps, right, and you're handling like or fifty, and you're handling like similar kind of clients, if you look at someone and, and like they support Arsenal, right, and you support Manchester United, then just just swap them over and give them to your mate. I mean, it's like, why would you go after someone who doesn't suit you as an individual on a personal level, anyway?
1: You know. Well, I think it. I mean, salespeople have got to be chameleons at that type of level. They've got to be able to get on with everybody.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um,
1: but I think being able to align your reps to markets that they're best suited for. Right. Is, is, and that's not written down anywhere. There's no playbook or sort of, te- sort of text that I've come across that kind of gives you that. That's just a good sales manager knowing their team knowing their reps and knowing where they're strong Mm. and that's just hard work on the behalf of the sales leadership to to kind of
0: understand and
1: best deploy their resources
0: yeah that's pretty cool so so a lot of training goes into goes into the sales pipeline and filling it up right like masses of training
1: Mm. for sure I mean. And as I say, I'm trying to pivot the training of the team that I do into generating pipe. Mm. There's enough people who have got experience to close a deal that we can bring to bear on a sales cycle. What there is a lot less of is how to get us into a sales cycle in the first place. So I've gone through a process with our enablement and training team to get them focused on how do we find deals. How do we get into sales situations? How do we accelerate that early part of the sales process? Because I find that's the biggest single thing I can do to ultimately drive the results at the back
0: end. Mm. Makes a lot of sense. It must take a lot of stress away from people as well. Because if they've got a pipe of like 30 instead of three, then the pressure on the customer is completely changed as well. The client isn't going to be like feeling like they've been like, pushed into buying something when they're not ready to buy it, you know?
1: Exactly. It's, it's less stressful for everybody at all stages in the process, but it's harder to do cause you've got to spend your time not talking about deals and you've got to spend your time talking about prospects and suspects. Yeah. And sales management want to talk about deals.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it's just resisting a kind of primeval, urge to talk about what's in your pipeline that you're going to close next week and forcing yourself to think about how do I have more deals that will close a couple of quarters from that. And that's tough. It's hard. Everything drags you back and snaps you back to this quarter. So it's fighting the urge of the corporation, the urge of everything you want to do as a sales manager and just focusing on those inputs rather than those outputs.
0: Hmm that's really interesting thanks Stephen. i appreciate uh, appreciate all your years of wisdom <laughs>
1: <laughs> too many gray hairs
0: nathaniel but, uh, they, <laughs> like they, me
1: <laughs> they lead to, they lead to experience and yeah it's been good to share that with you today
0: that's brilliant well thanks again thanks so much for listening please subscribe and wherever you prefer share with your friends and if you enjoyed the show drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen.